Father, as we come to study the Bible, we acknowledge that we won't be able to learn the truth. We won't be able to see your face. We won't be able to walk out in victory apart from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we're praying right now as we study the Bible that we would not rely on ourselves, that I would not rely on my ability to teach and those who listen would not rely on their ability to hear or understand, but that we would rely on you. So Spirit, be our teacher today. Father, point our hearts to Jesus and help us to trust him more and more over and over again. And Father, I pray not only for us in this room and those who've joined us online, but Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters who are in gatherings like this all around this community. We are not the only church in town. And so God, would you pour out the power of the Holy Spirit on the churches of Jesus Christ in this community. In particular, Lord, we pray for Pastor Scott Wilson, lead pastor at First Baptist Church, Melbourne. Lord, I thank you for Scott's friendship. Thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, I thank you that he knows the gospel and loves the gospel. And I thank you that I stand here with confidence that by your power, you're using him to preach the gospel to your people at First Baptist Melbourne. Do a powerful work among them today. And may they go forward with joy and gladness in the work of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters, our churches who are not our competitors, but our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we love you and we look to Jesus today. And we pray it all in Christ's name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I pray that you'll go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five, as we continue this series we've been in for, I guess, about five months on the book of Galatians. We're just gonna keep chugging along. And I'll just give you a little bit of of a heads up. Next Sunday for Easter, I will be stepping out of the Galatians series. And um, I believe the Lord has laid a, a passage on my heart from John chapter 20 concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And then the week after Easter, um, I really believe the Lord is leading me to step back in Galatians and will probably spend that morning continuing the study on this exact text. You'll probably see if you've been around here any amount of time that you could predict when you read the passage I'm going to study this morning that I'll never be able to get through it all this morning. It's hard for me to get through one verse, let alone 10 or 11, which is what we'll read today. So um, after Easter, we'll come back to this text. So you'll leave this morning and you may have questions about this passage of scripture that I won't address or answer, um, but I believe the Spirit would have us be in this passage for more than one week. So Galatians chapter 5. Before we read this text, I thought about my grandfather uh, quite a few times this week. My grandfather on my mother's side was an incredible man. He was born before World War I, lived through the Great Depression. He was a coal miner in West Virginia while he was still a teenager. He personified what Tom Brokaw described as the greatest generation. He was as tough as nails and as good 
as gold. And like many men in his age group, uh, my papa fought in World War II. He was a surveyor for the army. And many of you may not know what a surveyor did in World War II, but they were a really important group of people. The surveyors for the army, their job was to locate the exact location of the enemy. Even more, they had to find the precise location of the enemy's artillery, the big field guns that were being used to wreak havoc on our ground forces. Those surveyors had to find the location of those and pinpoint them on the map so that our army could launch a proper counter attack. And as you can imagine, it was an incredibly important and dangerous job because it wasn't a job you could do from a distance. So Papaw spent a large point or part of time in his, uh, his, his years of service walking through areas that had been occupied by German forces. And much of that walking was through places that were littered with landmines. Every step was literally a step of life or death. And, and I do recall on the few occasions when Papa would actually talk about his time in the war, he would quietly say at some point that it was only the grace and power of God that brought him home alive. Uh, Papa wasn't just talking about the war when he said that, though. He was referring to the fact that he didn't know Jesus when he was serving in World War II. He didn't come to know Christ until years later, and he knew that if he had died during that war, he would have been lost forever. And so that's why he said, it was truly the grace and power of God that brought me home alive. I've often thought about Papa walking through that war, and I imagine God directing each one of Papa's steps, preserving his life, bringing him home so he could be brought to Jesus, so that he could become the pastor that he was, so that he could be the pastor who taught my mom about Jesus. And he was the pastor who taught my dad about Jesus and influenced my dad to be a pastor himself. When I was training for pastoral ministry, my papa taught my theology class. My papa walked through a war and it was truly the gracious power of God that brought him through alive. And the reason why I share that with you is because whether you realize it or not, you are walking through a war. Every step, more than you may ever realize, every step you take along life's way is a matter of life or death. And just like Papal, you need to know that it will only be the gracious power of God that will bring you home alive. Now, let me show you that from this morning's text. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of God for us this morning. And I hope you can see what I was saying earlier. It's going to be a long road to go and a short time to get there for all of those verses. So I want to focus our attention really on what this passage is revealing about the battle that all of us are in. And the first thing I want you to see about our battle is that our flesh is at war against God's spirit. That's what the battle is that Paul's talking about. Look at verse 17 again. He lays it out very clearly here. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit, referring to the spirit of God, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, stop right there. So when Paul is talking about the war or the battle that we're in, in this passage of scripture, he's saying, here are the two combatants, the flesh, your flesh, and the spirit of God. Now, here's what, something quickly I want to point out to you. While, while there are other battles that we'll face, and the Bible shares with us that there are other types of battles that we're in, namely the battles with spiritual darkness and forces all around us, what you do need to realize is that while this might not be the only battle we face, it is the most consistent battle that we face. It's the battle within us. The reason I point that out is there are a lot of us who believe that our number one battle every day is the war that's going on around us. And Paul is showing us that the one consistent war is the battle that's taking place within us. You see, no matter what's going on around us, no matter who might be opposing you or what kind of conflict you may be in, whether it's interpersonal in your family or whether it's the culture wars that are being waged all around us, the one common denominator that you bring to all of those battles is that your flesh is going to be involved. And you're going to have to battle inside of all those other battles. You're going to have to battle this internal thing Paul's talking about, how your flesh wants to respond, and how the Spirit of God in you wants you to live. So I'm going to tell you, this very day, you're going to have an opportunity. You're going to have an opportunity to face a battle with something around you, and then it's going to expose the battle within you. The battle of how does God call you to respond, by your flesh or by your spirit. So you might get in a fight with someone driving on Courtney today after you leave this place. It's a, a high, high tendency if you drive down Courtney. You may, you may get into an argument with someone in the parking lot. You may disagree with a family member over dinner. You may wonder why I'm preaching so long when you're so hungry. You may have all kinds of conflict going on, right? And in you, there will be a war between the spirit of God and the desires of your flesh. So while this isn't the only battle, guys, this is the consistent battle that every morning you wake up, the enemy that is lurking around the corner 
is a desire that's right there in your flesh. And so the question we should ask is, what is the flesh? So, so if, if there's a battle between the Spirit of God and my flesh, what does Paul mean when he says flesh? Is he just talking about my body? Is God opposed to my body? What's the flesh? Well, you need to know this. As you go through the book of Galatians, you find that Paul uses that word flesh all the time, and he doesn't always use it in a bad way. Sometimes he's just talking about his physical body. So one chapter before, Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, you may recall, says this, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. That word bodily translates the same word as flesh in our text. So he's talking about his body. And so flesh isn't always a reference to a negative thing. You can keep this in mind. It's not always a negative thing. It's always a natural thing. Humans have a human nature. Did you guys know that? We have a human nature that has natural abilities and natural desires. And so when Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about our nature as humans. Our nature is including a body physically for sure, but it's also a body that is connected to human ability and human desire. And here's what you need to know. Our nature as humans has been corrupted by sin. So all of our natural desires have been twisted and bent because of sin. So there are times when Paul is talking about the flesh, about our human nature, and he's basically referencing the sinful nature that has sinful desires. And that's what Galatians is talking about over and over again. Our flesh is filled with a human nature corrupted by sin that has natural sinful desires, natural sinful wants. And there are two desires in particular that Paul associates with our flesh, self-reliance and self-centeredness. Now, we talked about these, but let me just look back and give you an example of each one. Let's start with self-reliant. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, remember what's happening here. A group of false teachers had come to these Christians and told them that the way to be right with God was not only to trust in Jesus, but to rely on your own ability to do good works. That's called self-reliance. And Paul, in this verse of scripture, connects that word flesh with that attitude of self-reliance. Okay, so when Paul talks about flesh and sinful desire being expressed in self-reliance, you need to know this. Any work you do by your own power, relying on your ability your natural ability, your personal ability without relying on God, his ability, his power, his spirit. Anything you do that comes from that place of self-reliance is a work of the flesh, okay? Now, let me show you the self-centered aspect of the flesh. We just saw it last week, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom As an opportunity for what? The flesh. But through love serve one another. Do you see what he's doing here? Here's what he's doing. He's contrasting the flesh with its desires. 
He's contrasting that with loving others in a way that serves them. And here's why he's doing that. The flesh, with its corrupted desires, the flesh loves itself and serves itself. The flesh is self-centered. So what happens is God has given us natural desires and the flesh, corrupted by sin, grabs hold of those desires and twists them, turns them, bends them out of God's design. So take, for instance, our desire for food. Did you know God gave you a desire for food? Oh, some of us said, oh, finally a subject I can say amen to. God gave us a desire for food. And right now, your desire for food is growing and growing with every word I speak, right? Especially when I start to talk about food. Well, you know what happened? Our corrupted flesh has taken that natural desire that God has given us and has twisted it. So now we take that desire and it's corrupted by self-centeredness. We eat for ourselves, and let me give you a, just a quick, a quick illustration of that. Uh, I did not manage the building project really well when it came to some stress management. I had a tendency to comfort eat at night, all right? Uh, so as we went through the building project and the longer that it went, the more ice cream became a part of my daily life. Prayer and ice cream got me through the building project and the grace of God. What happened, though, in all honesty, is that I was eating... For me, but not my family, not, not the health of my wife or my children. And we had a little face-to-face chat about that last fall, about how my eating was about me. I wasn't thinking how down the road the habits and patterns that I was in would affect my children and my grandchildren and my wife. My natural appetite had been twisted by sin, not only self-centered pleasure and comfort, but not using that appetite for the good of the people around us. And you can do that with any single appetite that your natural desires have. It gets twisted by our flesh. So let's put all of that together and we'll see a definition for the flesh. Our flesh is the self-reliant, self-centered nature that all of us have because of sin. We rely on ourselves. We live for ourselves Because our nature has been corrupted by sin. Those self-reliant, self-centered desires, Paul says, are opposed to the desires of God's spirit for your life. There's a battle between the self-reliant, self-centered part of who you are as a sinner and the work of Jesus desiring to build your life into his own image. And what Paul does next is he gives us two really big warnings about what happens when you yield your life to the desires of the flesh. First, he says, the flesh will lead you to a life of sin. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, now the works of the flesh, now notice this phrase, he says they're evident. That's basically like saying this, do you want evidence over whether or not you are following after the flesh in this battle or whether you're following after the spirit? Well, let me give you evidence that you are following after the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, 
divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He, he gives us this list to say, here are ways you can see the evidence of the flesh's work in your life. And there's a lot that could be said about that list. We could go through and define all of those terms, and we're not going to do that this morning. That might be a great word study for you. But what I really want to show you is that what Paul is pinpointing is that all of those external expressions for sin come from the same heart issue. You see that? He says, these are the works of the same thing in you. They may have different expressions, different names, different looks on the outside, but they all stem from the same thing, the sinful desires of your flesh. You see that there? These are all the expressions of the same root cause, the sinful desires of our flesh. Now, you ask, why are you pointing that out? Well, I point that out because I see a dangerous thing happening all over the place. Our world is blatantly minimizing sin. Did you know that? For instance, one of the first things on that list, the first thing he names is sexual immorality. Our world is blatantly minimizing sexual immorality as sin. It's celebrated in our culture. Almost anything and everything is accepted and applauded. Kindergarten children are being bombarded with sexually explicit images. Mainstream Christian denominations are celebrating Gay Pride Month and ordaining homosexuals into church leadership. I taught this passage about 10 years ago, and I cannot believe how, how quickly we have slid as a culture in our unwillingness to recognize that sin is sin. We are minimizing sin, right? But listen. Before we point out how much everyone around us is minimizing sin, it's probably a good idea to ask whether or not you and I are minimizing sin. Here's what I mean, and this is why I made the point. Paul's saying the same heart motive is behind all of these expressions of sin. You know what that means? It means that the heart motive behind sexual immorality, that all of us would say we grieve being minimized in our culture, that same heart motive is behind idolatry and it's behind sorcery and witchcraft and we would grieve that being minimized in our culture. You know what else that same heart motive is behind? Jealousy, fits of anger, division, Church, I want to ask you this. Why are we so serious about confronting the sin of homosexuality while we tolerate the sin of division or we excuse angry, critical spirits that are dissentious and divisive among our relationships? You know what, what the answer is? We've minimized sin. And you need to hear Paul's warning. It's all from the same place. The sinful desires of your flesh. Your flesh will lead you to a life of sin. And no matter what particular expression it might take in your life, you need to know this. And we need to say this. Sin is sin. 
And that leads to the second warning about what happens when we yield our lives to the sinful desires of the flesh. Not only will the flesh lead us to a life of sin, the flesh will keep us from a life with God. Look at verse 21. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, I don't want to wrangle or twist anything that the Bible's saying here. This is straightforward and it is sobering. That phrase there, those who do such things, is describing an ongoing lifestyle. It's not a one-time event. So Paul isn't saying, listen, if you've ever committed any of these expressions of sin, you can't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, the message of the gospel could not be more clear. Jesus came to this world to pay for all the sins Every expression we just named and every other one we could name, Jesus came to this earth to take all our sin and place it on his cross. And the Bible is clear that if we are willing to trust in Jesus, depending on him to pay for our sin, his glorious death and his resurrection power, the Bible says we will spend forever with him in heaven. We can't earn our entrance to heaven by relying on the way we live. Guys, there's only one way to get into the kingdom of heaven, by trusting and relying on Jesus. And if you are trusting and relying on Jesus, the Bible has this promise. All who come to him, he will never cast out. So if Paul is saying that we are able to enter heaven, even if we've committed these sins, what, what, what is he saying beyond that? Well, what he's saying is that when your life is marked by persistent, unrepentant patterns of sin, that is an indicator that you are not relying on Jesus. And then go back one step. If you aren't relying on Jesus, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If we don't turn to Jesus in faith, our flesh will keep us from a life with God in heaven. Ultimately, guys, that's what's in on the line in the battle against sin. The stakes could not be higher. That's why I said at the beginning, every step is a step of life or death. But here's what I want you to know. This passage is not about the bad news in our battle with sin. It's about the good news of what Jesus will do by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing we see. God's Spirit brings victory over our flesh. Uh, Look at verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Guys, that's what this passage is all about. The emphasis of this text is not so much the fact that you're in a battle with sin. The emphasis on this text is the fact that the Holy Spirit of Jesus will give you victory. Verse 16, I hope you notice, it's a promise. Do you notice that? He's promising something. He says, listen, friend, if you will walk by the Spirit, if you'll just walk by the Spirit of God, You will not gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. You're in for a fight, but you are in for a victory if you're willing to walk by the Spirit. It's a promise. It's guaranteed from God himself. And just from that truth, 
There are several things I want to tell you that I pray would encourage you today. Just from that truth. These are really obvious things. But obvious is about as profound as I'm able to be. So look at these three obvious truths out of just that promise that the Spirit will bring us victory in our battle over flesh. First, first truth. True Christians fight sin. I know that seems really obvious, but he's talking to Christians here. That's why he calls them to rely on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of anyone who's born again by the Spirit. And so he's talking to true Christians, and he's guaranteeing them victory, but he's also acknowledging that it's victory in their current battle of sin. And guys, you need to know, true Christians fight sin. And here's why I say that. I say that because some of you enter this place and you feel your daily battle with sin and you think that's an indicator that you must not really be a Christian. You think, I mean, if I were really a follower of Jesus, would I have to wake up every single day and have this same old tiresome fight with the same old sins? And the answer is yes, Absolutely, you'll have to wake up every day until Jesus comes again or calls you home and battle the sinful desires of the flesh. If you have flesh, and let me ask you this, do you have flesh? Yeah, you do. Then you're in for a fight. What should concern you and what should concern me as a pastor is not when someone is in a fight with sin. It's when someone isn't. It's those who say, I've got no battle, I'm doing fine. The people who wake up every morning and they just live. They don't feel a fight. They don't feel the temptation. They don't see. That's not an indicator that you're a great Christian. It's an indicator that you're not in a battle. And if you're not in a battle, the question I have is, are you born again? Because true Christians fight sin. Let this be an encouragement to you in your battle with sin. The very fact you're in a battle is an indicator that you've been born of the Spirit and the Spirit is stirring you to fight the good fight against sin. Second truth is this. Not only are true Christians fight sin, but you can have victory over sin. Guys, I know that's an obvious thing to say, but there are people who live in perpetual discouragement because they're in that daily battle with sin over and over again. I want you to hear the word of God for you today, friend. No matter what your struggles might be, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's relational sin, whether it's idolatry to the things of this world, whether you had a fall last night or you have stumbled this very morning, you need to hear the word of God for you today. You can have victory. You are not too far gone and you are not out of reach. Right now, this very day, this very moment, you can leave this place experiencing the victory of God's spirit in your battle over sin. God has made a way by his grace and not your power that you can live a victorious Christian Life. Don't give in. Don't be discouraged. You can have victory over sin. And the last truth that flows out of that very simple truth that the Spirit of God brings victory over our flesh is that you don't fight sin by fixating on sin. 
Now, I know that's another obvious thing that you see here, but it's, it's one you could overlook. Notice that Paul, when he's talking about our battle with sin, says, hey, you really need to keep an eye out for sin. You really need to focus on those areas of weakness in your life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. He just makes a promise. If you'll walk by the Spirit, you will not fall into the gratification of sin. Guys, the reason why I say you don't fight sin by fixating on sin is because I've been a follower of Jesus for almost 40 years and a large portion of my Christian life, I tried to fight my sin by focusing on my sin. For instance, I've shared with you all the time, I have had a lifelong battle with anxiety and fear. I wake up every morning and it's a part of every day of my life. And for much of my life, You need to know that I tried to fight anxiety by focusing on anxiety. I tell myself, Titus, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't don't worry today. Don't be anxious. I would fixate on anxiety. And listen, fixating on sin won't fix sin. Did you know that? If if that worked, y'all would be pros by now. Fixating on sin doesn't fix sin. If anything, it makes it worse. Waking up in the morning and tell myself not to be anxious only highlights the fact how anxious I am, which makes me more anxious and makes me sin more. I know I need professional help. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Emily and I have two new drivers in our house. They're both learning to drive. It's awesome. It's awesome. Logan has his license. He's 16 years old, driving a big old Bronco. It's pretty cool. Uh, So long as the motor holds out quarter million miles on it, which anyhow, Mia's got her learner's permit. And so she's in a bit of a different stage, but both of them are having to learn a really important lesson about driving a car. They're having to learn that they have to look where they want to (laughs) go because they'll go where they look. And this is a public service announcement because I've followed a lot of you out of this parking lot. You got to look where you want to go because you'll go where you look. When I was a new driver, I, for the first time in my life somehow, noticed just how close the mailboxes are to the side of the road. And I didn't want to hit a mailbox, right? Who wants to hit a mailbox? Nobody wants to hit a mailbox. And so what I would do is I would keep my eye on the mailboxes to make sure I wasn't hitting them. Anybody had that experience? Do you know what happens when you keep an eye on the mailbox? It's a mysterious thing. You start to drift right toward that mailbox. What's going on, right? You don't know. You look where you're going because you'll go where you're looking. Did you know that's a spiritual law? That's how it is with sin. When we fixate on sin, we will naturally begin to drift toward it. You don't fixate on sin and fix it. You don't fight anxiety by telling yourself over and over again, don't be anxious. You don't fight your addiction to alcohol by telling yourself over and again, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. You don't fight your addiction to lust by telling yourself not to look at sexually explicit images. You don't fight your sin by fixating on sin. You know how you fight your sin? By focusing on walking in the spirit of almighty God. The spirit of God is stronger than your sin. He's more than enough to get the job done. And the promise of God is if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the sinful desire of your flesh. It just won't happen. 
So the last big question we'll cover for this morning, and there's more to come in the weeks ahead, is this. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, Paul gives us three parallel phrases in our text that helps us understand what it means to walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit. In verse 22, he says, the fruit of the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And there's one common denominator in all those descriptions. And the common denominator is dependence. Living by the Spirit is the same as depending on the Spirit. And it's the same as depending on the Spirit step by step by step. That's why he says walk by the Spirit. So let's take those and and see dependence in each one. Being led by the Spirit means that you depend on the Spirit to lead you. Guys, it's a really important thing that when Paul writes that verse in the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes it as a passive verse and not an active verse verse. He doesn't tell us, follow the Spirit. Now, that would be a very good thing to say, but he emphasizes, be led by the Spirit. Do you know the difference between following and being led by? Well, it's the difference between following a driver who's driving in front of you and being a trailer that's hooked up to a car that is leading it down the road. Uh, a couple months ago, I had to follow Richard Fuller to this place. I didn't know where to go. And it was obvious in about a quarter mile that he was trying to lose me, weaving in and out of traffic like he was a NASCAR driver. I don't know. And I'm back there saying, Fuller, what are you doing? I can't keep up. I can't follow you. You got a little sports car and I got a big old SUV. He's trying to, he's trying to outpace me. A lot of us feel like that's what it means to Follow the Spirit or be led by the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. He says, be led passively. Be hooked up like a trailer. And the Holy Spirit will lead you down the road. Depend on the Spirit, not your power. It's the same thing with the fruit of the Spirit. He emphasizes it's the, it's the Spirit that produces the fruit. You don't produce it. You don't make yourself more loving. You don't make yourself more joyous. You don't make yourself more patient. Let me say that again. You don't make yourself more patient. The Spirit has to produce that in you. So we are called not to produce the Spirit's fruit, but to depend on the Spirit to produce the fruit. It's the same thing with living in the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives us spiritual life. We're dependent on Him for life. We can't make ourselves live. And the Spirit sets the spiritual pace. We don't give life. We don't set pace or direction. The Spirit does those things. Imagine that you're being led through a forest like my granddad that was full of landmines and you had a guide who knew exactly where all of them were even though you didn't. Imagine that guide who knows where all the landmines says, listen, I know you don't know how to get out of here alive, but I do. So every time I take a step, all you've got to do is put your foot down where mine just was. What'd you do? You'd stay right there with him. You would follow your guide like your life depended on it. You would depend on your guide and not yourself. That's how we depend on the Spirit. So walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, Keeping in step with the Spirit. That's just another way of depend on the Spirit and not yourself. You know what that's another word for? Faith. Faith. Trust the Spirit of God and not yourself. 
Trust the Spirit of God to give you power you don't have. Trust the Spirit of God to enable the life of Christ in you. That is how you live in victory. And that's our big idea for this morning. The Spirit of Christ in us gives victory to us when we rely on Him and not ourselves. When we rely on the Spirit of Christ Jesus to live in us, do you know what the Spirit of Christ Jesus will do? Live in us. And so there's more to be talked about in this battle. In a couple weeks, we'll come back to this same text. But this morning, the focus of our heart would be, are you depending on Jesus by the power of the Spirit, or are you depending on yourself to live the Christian life? There's only one way for victory, and it's the battle to believe. It's the fight of faith. It's depending on Jesus and not ourselves. And guys, that's actually what brings us to the Lord's Supper. If you have those elements, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and take them out right now. And I want you to think about what the Lord's Supper actually signifies. What we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper is we're taking this bread and we're taking this juice and we're acknowledging that they represent the body and blood of Jesus. We're taking the work of Jesus signified in this bread that was broken at the cross and this blood that was shed at the cross. We're acknowledging the work of Jesus. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And that though he died, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And so we take this bread and juice that represent the work and body of Christ and and think of what we do next. We we put it into ourselves. What, What we're saying when we do that is that we're saying that we're depending on Christ in us. The work of Jesus to be at work in us. To make us right. To keep us right. To do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so for those of you who may have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I pray this would be the morning that you would do that. And that your first expression of faith would be the Lord's Supper. That it would be the act of your heart saying, I need Jesus to do for me what I can't do for myself. And my only hope to live And victory over the power of sin is the power of Christ in me through the work of the Spirit. That's what this is all about. And so would you bow your heads and let's hold that juice and bread in our hands. And let me just ask, are you trusting in Jesus? In Jesus alone. The work of Christ in you by the power of the Spirit to make you right and keep you right. If you are, would you give thanks right now for Jesus and pray for faith to grow. And if you've never placed your faith in Christ right now, would you call on Jesus to save you? Acknowledge your need for him. Believing that you don't just need him, but you have him. Father, we all feel and acknowledge that this is a battle at war in our world and in us that we can't win. 
not in our own strength and not in our own power. And so we thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you on that Palm Sunday, Christ walked down a road that would lead to a cross so that he could take our sin on his body, be punished in our place so we could be forgiven by you. And thank you that though Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He rose again and will raise us up to a brand new life by your spirit's power. So as we observe the Lord's Supper, may our eyes be fixed on Jesus. And may we walk by faith and experience victory in him. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.